0: We are thrilled that we have such a fabulous turnout at 5.05. Even at 5.01, you were very impressive. Um, Narrative Medicine Rounds has a long history of um, having the 5.09 rush into the room. So, you know, I'm happy to see that we're turning over a new Maybe we'll have the 5.01 rush into the room for the rest of the year. Um... So welcome, welcome to the first Narrative Medicine rounds of the 2010-2011 school year. Um, We heartily welcome you. I am Sayantani Dasgupta. I am one of the faculty members here at the program in Narrative Medicine, and I teach um, along with my colleagues here in the wonderful Master's in Narrative Medicine, which is now beginning its official second year. And if yes, and if I didn't make it clear from the pace of at which I just announced that we are very excited, (laughs) yay! Welcome all of you. Um, Let me introduce some of the other faculty members who are here. Dr. Rita Sharon, the director of the program in narrative medicine, is right here. Marsha Hurst, who is another faculty member in the master's program right here, who I'll be co-teaching with this semester, and Patricia Stanley, right up here up front. Um, some of the other faculty members who I saw, I saw Nellie Herman, there she is, right there, and also Scott Alderman, the administrator in our program, who is our scholar support. support. Um, So I am uh, actually gonna be turning over, I talked about the 501 rush and the 509 rush and it being a new leaf for a new year. Um, So I am also gonna be turning over a slightly, a small new leaf for this year. For the past couple of years, um, those of you who are regular rounds attendees, and I see several faces, um, know that for the past couple of years I've been up here at the podium, um, waxing enthusiastic about our master's program, And welcoming all of you each month. And um, I will still be doing that sometimes, but I'm excited to be um, stepping into a slightly new role um, where we will be organizing uh, these rounds, which are monthly gatherings, usually held on the first Wednesday of every month. This is a bit of an unusual month. Um, Monthly gatherings where we in the program in narrative medicine invite our community to come together and we have uh, talks and readings and presentations by writers, artists, performers, scholars who are all working at the intersections of humanities and healthcare. Um, But these monthly rounds are going to be um, kind of taken up this year by a band of faculty members um, and will be organized. Um, we are so very grateful um, for the wonderful organization that Scott Alderman will be helping um, us with this year for rounds, so a little bit of a new leap for rounds this year. Um, so I'm going to not take up too much more of your time. I'd like to thank all of you for coming. Uh, for those of you who have been here before, you know that this is um, a real critical piece of why we continue to have rounds is this idea of coming together, this idea of community. Um, and, and I actually I shouldn't say idea. This community, this community that is right here, right before me. Um, Rounds is a wonderful space to come together, whether you're in the master's program, whether you are uh, have any other affiliation with the program in narrative medicine, is to come together to meet fellow enthusiasts, Um, to think about the projects you're working on, to find collaborators. Many a paper has been written by people who meet here. Um, Many a project has been begun in this room. So I really want to um, humbly and enthusiastically and warmly um, thank all of you for your presence, because without it, these rounds wouldn't be possible. Um, I would also like to thank, once again, a second little shout-out, for the master's students who are here this evening, yay! Um, especially the new ones, welcome. Welcome to your new team. Um, I'd like to thank our wonderful friends at the Faculty Club, who um, help host um, us every month. And there is uh, the lovely Sandra from the bookstore. Wait, Sandra? <coughs> oh, who will who will be selling books, we think. Who will be selling books, I hope. It- we will clarify. Um, who is in the back usually with books available for sale for after the meetings, um, which then you can purchase and have signed, but we will clarify that. Um, we'd also um, just, uh, I'd like to say one more thing, like to point out that um, in the people that we bring to rounds, we um, at least in the last two years, I, I've tried to pay attention to um, the issue of breath and to think about all of the manifestations of what this work can and should and could possibly mean. Um, at some point last year, I said something that several of the students I think picked up in a couple of their classes. I was quoting the Nigerian fiction writer, the Nigerian novelist Chimamanda Adichie, who says um, that there is a danger in the singular story. Right, there's a danger in the singular story. And she was at that point Um, talking about the danger of a singular story about Africa and the importance of a lot of different stories to come out about Africa. But I would like to kind of take that and think about um, us going forward this year um, in terms of breadth and think about the danger of one story of what narrative medicine is. Um, And for tonight, I'd like to take a little twist on that idea of of the singular story and say that maybe there's also um, a danger in a singular methodology. Um, that tonight we're going to be kind of both paying homage to the written word, you know, uh, Joshua's work is available in print, but also looking at where uh, the oral word can take us and where that verbal interchange um, offers possibilities uh, beyond that on the written page. And so with that, I will turn it over to my colleague, Patricia Stanley, who will have the great pleasure of introducing our speaker for this evening. Thank you.
1: I, I am so honored to be here tonight to introduce you to an amazing young man. I met Joshua Bennett at an alumni dinner at my high school where he took time off from attending college to perform some spoken word for all of us. I was completely knocked off my seat and thought, how can we lure him to Columbia? Uh, Joshua is amazing for many reasons. He just graduated from the University of Pennsylvania with distinctions of Phi Beta Kappa and Magna Cum Laude, after double majoring in English and Africana Studies with minors in Spanish and History. He is a professional performance poet and has recited his original work at events such as the Sundance Film Festival, the NAACP Image Awards, and President Obama's Evening of Poetry and Music at the White House. He is a slam champ with two other Penn Slammers, and he won the Brave New Voices Teen Poetry Competition sponsored by HBO in 2007. Josh is the first African American at Penn to win a Marshall Scholarship from the United Kingdom, and he will use it to pursue a Master of Arts in Theater and Performance Studies. He will be studying at the University of Warwick in England and plans to create a genealogy of disabled black performers from the late 19th century onward. He also received a pre-doctoral fellowship from the Ford Foundation, and when he returns from England, he will pursue a PhD in English at Princeton. He plans to teach literature and stage performance at the university level. He says, I want to find a way to make spoken word meet the theater arts in a really profound, powerful fashion that you can't ignore. His poetry is interspersed throughout the upcoming film, One Night in Vegas, and that's part of ESPN's 30 for 30 series. The film chronicles the relationship between Mike Tyson and rapper Tupac Shakur. (laughs) His song, Don't Let Me Go, is now number one on the hype machine Twitter charts. And he just completed taping for his first TV solo performance for the late night talk show hosted by Monique. His first book of poetry, Jesus Riding Shotgun, is currently available for sale through penmanship books, and I'm hoping in the back of the room tonight. But in addition to these amazing accomplishments, Josh is at heart an advocate who cares deeply about humanity, about his family, and about those voices who are often not heard. He has commented, I want to do advocacy work and use the arts as a tool for social change. And to this end, while at Penn, he set up a program called BARS, Beautiful Art, Rupture, Silence, through which he and a few fellow students have gone to prisons to hold creative writing workshops. On Saturday mornings at Penn, He also mentored middle school youths from the inner city. And he was a member of the Exolano Project, which is Penn's first and only spoken word group. They have a tagline. It is, We Write to Have Subtitles for Life. The mission of this group, dedicated to the mic, is about finding voice. It is about holding a speaker up to life's white noise to find that every one of us can be heard. In Joshua's graduation speech for the class of 2010 at Penn's College of Arts and Sciences, he exhorted his fellow students to use their exceptional skills to make the world more acceptable, to lead not only a life of mind, but also of heart. This is what he said. Listen to the voice inside and give whatever beauty it inspired to the world. People learn how to treat you based upon what you accept from them. So do not accept silence. With booming voice or nimble hands, tell the world your story, your beautiful, exceptional story. And so please, Let's give Joshua Bennett a booming welcome to Narrative Medicine Rounds tonight.
2: Uh, two days ago, I actually saw my older brother going for the first time in eight years, and uh, he took a one minute video on my foot camp of us hanging out. and I wanted to show it to you guys, the it foregrounds a lot of what I'm going to talk about today. Is that cool, everybody? Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, all right, Scott, you got it? Thank you, Scott's really cool. <laughs>
0: Bar up. Wait yeah.
2: That. Yeah, yeah, and then push that push, push the that. bar up on the line. Uh-huh. But at the bottom you can see the icon because yes. <laughs> yeah. so it's the crazy uh-huh. place. Yeah, because where it says in the net. Yeah, look next like to that. It looks like something to the right. So oh, that's the camera. It's fine. You don't have to show is what I'm gonna do. I'm going For raising a son who uh, who knew that they were all beautiful in different ways and uh, my little brother levi is here too and now you are doing a great job with him I've seen I've seen so many miracles in my little brother's life um, just as a, a young man with autism who's every day breaking down the boundaries when the world he says he can cannot do uh, he's beautiful I love him and thank you for listening Levi I'm doing a great job with you So, the class that so I speak with Apple will decide on the title for this. So, pay attention closely. Who here has heard spoken word before? Okay, so you guys want right? like to do right? You like something maybe about it? Now, it's Saturday morning, and I'm back in jail again. Standing in front of 10 students with the word violence written on the chalkboard behind me fellowing, like a 1969 Johnny Cash sitting in the concrete stomach of San Quentin State Prison. But this is not San Quentin. This is a classroom in a Philadelphia corrections facility. Every student is 13 to 18 years old and is the first to realize that he is not like normal. Hasn't been quite right since the day he saw his best friend die. Says that when the bullet hit, it looked like a rock smacked him in the side of the head. And what strikes me most is not the story itself, more than the image of a boy having his skull carved out by the guts of a gun. Sounds nothing like a Hollywood action thing nothing like Green Mile or Shawshank. This requires a very different sort of redemption. Eleven of us. Sitting in a circle like a wedding ring made from orange-fried skeletons bound to each other, mapped to the mayhem of this place, all bedrock and metal judges with gowns like guillotines that like incites a like young man and fight and It makes me think of my older brother, on of how a grocery store robbery going wrong got him gift wrapped in the cell of my entire childhood. I'm 22 years old. And I can cut on one hand, and of the times I've seen it in my life, the world says. That the sins of in enemies these dangerous. That he sees people that aren't really there, and I want to tell them about Christ, of a Messiah that sees me in at least three forms: the me I was, the me I am, and the me I will be in the afterlife. But a god has a mind like God. Then how come I can sit in church and sing hymns, but can't sing him a song that will wreck the eleven years sitting between us? Michael calls himself disabled, and the entire classroom goes silent, hushed falls over everyone like a curtain made of breath. I asked him what it means. And he hands me his dreams. He says that he can't really sleep on his left side anymore because a couple years ago, someone tried to caress his heart with a butterfly knife. Right? We both know that love and life are hard, but we speak very different languages. I know that Owen spoke at least two languages. That used to translate from my sister to now back when my family thought that deafness was some sort of phase he would grow out of. I wonder if he knows that Jesus spoke with his hands too. That when they asked if he had really risen from the dead, they showed him the holes in his palms as assurance. I break into tears after explaining to my students that this is why I spend my Saturday mornings with them. The memory of a boy sitting alone in a house far too big for his tiny body, no older brother to teach him how to throw a football shopped her clothes for tell Debbie Solano in the third grade all about his unspeakable crush on her. These are the <laughs> things I learned on the fly. As the older version of me sat silently in the cage, a tomb of doctors deciding exactly what was wrong with his brain and how much he would charge him to fix it. Mm-hmm. Michael was released a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. My heart turns into a runaway gloom every time I see his empty chair in the class. I write the word love on the board, the perfect writing prompt for a place like this. I hand out pen and paper and watch ten young men turn a prison into a sanctuary. Right? So all of my poems really come to me just sitting down a day and thinking, man, this happened in my life. I wonder if this happened to other people. Can you actually write about it? This would be cool. Because um, my whole thing is that every personal story is also universal. right? Like We forget that the human condition is something that binds us all. So uh, I've been going into the prison for about a year. Thank you Pat for that beautiful introduction. Um, Bars was a program I started from a vision. Um, I was doing summer research at Northwestern University uh, in performance studies and I literally just had a vision one day of you microphones know, in a prison. Mm-hmm. I didn't know how I was gonna get there. I just knew that there were a lot of 13-year-olds in adult prisons, by the way. So all the kids I work with, not kids, I'm sorry, all of the young men and women I work with are 13 to 18 years old, and they're all in there for violent crimes. So murder, rape, rape, assault, battery, etc. And I think as a poet, I just wrote incredibly self righteous You know, I felt like I was a good arts activist, and I mentored kids on weekends, and until you have looked, the eyes of a 13-year-old that's killed somebody, and when he explains to you that he's never had a parent in his life, never had a teacher telling him he was anything, that literally in the past 13 years, every day is a reminder that he does not matter. It, it makes a lot of things clear about the world we live in and why it is the way it is. Um, and so that poem came from recognizing people's humanity for the first time. Uh, we live in a country and a society that has lots that puts people in cages. And I think it's hard for us to think about prisoners as people living in cages i for am gonna get into another moment soon, I promise. But it's just important. The first activist to me was like, you gotta say this if you get from the audience to say, um, think about it. There, just, there are other options, y'all. And the world tells us there are. That people do things that are wrong enough that they should spend the rest of their life life in a box, you know? Um, so that's that. This next moment, uh also comes, I guess, from my experience, my family. The name Cliff Walking on the Water, uh, it was the name of my honors thesis and uh, it also came from being raised in a Christian household that was very radical in certain ways. So one was that I was always taught that women were very close to God, right? And I think that's just something that nobody ever talks about, right? But I was raised by women in period. I had three moms, really. I have my aunt, I had my mother in the back and my older sister Toya. And uh, this next piece is about them, and it's for them. Um, it's called 10 Things I Want to Say to a Black Woman. Um, this is actually a poem I did uh, from Monique on BET. It was interesting. How about some cool songs to it? Whatever. Okay, so fun. Ten things I want to say to a black woman. One, I wish I could put your voice in a jar. Wait for those only winter nights to not forget what God sounds like. Run to the nearest maximum security Watch the notes bounce off the walls like finishing bullets as you keep hoping for the sunnings of so every brother in the room. Skeletons holding in those lots of to remind you that the way you will black man's heart is not with your sun. It is with the heaven in your hello. The echo of unborn galaxies that houses forth from your old boards and melts ice roads into oceans, baptizing our lips until harsh words fade from our memories, and we forget all the stop calling divine in the first place, too. When I was born, my mother's smile was so bright, it knocked the air from my lungs, and I haven't been able to breathe right since. <laughs> it's something about the way light dances off your of seat. The way the moon gets jealous so when you mock your oppressive figure with the shape of your mouth. Clean. You make the sky insecure. Subconsciously being forced to stare at her face every morning and realize that the blues of her skin was painted by that second door cargo so her tongue. Three, who else can make kings out of baskets? the fatherless of sent into a floor full of gifts in a kitchen. That's almost like the Lord is coming tomorrow. And we must eat well tonight. I used to <laughs> think my sister was a blacksmith, but when she read fire and metal in the Making enough for him to be a little boy who didn't have a stay the word to say on my cemento back then, was on the back on the face on the day he turned You're your skin reminds me of everything beautiful I have ever known, the color of ink on a page, the earth we walk on and across that say my savior five, I just to you crucified too, spread out on blue boards to be spiritually impaled by millions of men with eyes like nails, we martyrs of your daughters. So I'm sorry for the busy videos, you know. Justin Timberlake got the Super Bowl that the young man on the corner this morning made you understand your flesh and become invisible, never doubt. That he only insults you because men are confused. <laughs> and we're trained to destroy or conquer everything we see from birth since I ever see down there like in public I punching you in the face. One time, for every member of the Rubbers in Tennessee, where he's after the ball. And that's how we sure a shot. My mother, my grandmother, and my seven old niece, who's got eyes like firebombs, and then daring to tell me that black women are only really beautiful in one sheet of skin. Seven, you are like a sunrise in a nation at war. You remind people that there is always something worth making up to me. When we are married, I will cook, do dishes, <laughs> and wherever else it takes to let you know that traditional gender roles have no place in the home we build. So my last name is an option, babysitting the kids to treat these split equally in our day. In ancient temple, why construct altars of wax and you smaller your back? And you make love like the sky is falling, moving, to in the middle of bed strings and double the the golden angels, applauding <laughs> the of saying, This is the way it was meant to be. <laughs> now My daughter will know her father's face from the day she was born. And I can only pray that this Superman complex lasts long enough. For me to reflect that the man's love will aim at her. but the moment she's old enough to realize that the color brown, Still not considered human in most places. My daughter will wow, have a smile like a wheelchair. And so even when I am at my worst. When the critic of this patriot planet threatens to render me grounded, the light dancing off of her teeth will transform the shards of my broken body into heart-shaped blackbirds in flight on the wind that reminds me of my Savior's hands. But my daughter's smile. For my mother's laugh when I was in her womb ten. And never stopped pushing. This world needs to me. I'm <laughs> sorry! which is really interesting just such strong scholars over there, Daphne Brooks, uh, Gail Sutherland and Smith, uh, women that are doing powerful, powerful work in the, in the field of performance studies, and whose work essentially concerned with the idea that every, literally every body is beautiful, but every space, body is beautiful, you know? So uh, just ways of rethinking just the, the lives and the recession that have been told about how we should look. Like think about how many billion dollars in this on people not liking who they are and how they are and how they're made, right? Um, so I think crip walking on water, I could really explain that finally. Right? Okay, crip walk. Who knows what those <laughs> the crip walk is? Is anybody familiar? Cool, we got some hipsters the okay. audience. <laughs> so the crip walk, right, is a dance that was popularized in the 20th century, so it was late Um gotta hear you guys, you know. So it like, was popularized in the 90s by a gang called the Crips, right? Um, and what it is, it's literally writing the word crip. CRI, it's literally writing the word crip with your feet. In the ground. And um, why that fascinated me in terms of thinking about disability is a lot of folks in the disability community use the term cripple, right? And or the world's used the term cripple, and now cripple has become a term of endearing and empowerment. And so I was like, wow, it's really interesting. I wanted this connection. And if you actually look at, at someone doing the cripple walk, dips the dips and the wings in it, and the way that their body's moving, it's almost as like if they themselves, even if they're an able bodied person, it looks as if they've entered the a disabled body in terms of the way they're moving. And also, in terms of writing with the body, like using your body to create entirely new narrative was something that was just completely powerful for me. Because a lot of these folks, a lot of folks, even my friends that are in gangs, a lot of it is that traditional education has failed them. You know, in these spaces, these folks become in which they can write their own narrative. Um, and so flip walk one more, essentially concerned with how the disabled folks in my life, um, how my family, how my friends, how the people I love have helped me rewrite my own how challenging mass narratives um, about the probably thing identity. So this next poem is uh, inspired by one of the youth uh, that I worked with in Philadelphia. Uh, his name is Derek Pratt and a uh, really beautiful, beautiful young man. Um, i worked with him since I was 17 years old, but wow, it's crazy. I'm 22, and I'm a little 22, and then like, so it's just weird, sorry. <laughs> um, so I've been working with Derek since he was 11, at least he's five now. And Ashe uh, uh, was a program where every Saturday we would have kids from Philly uh, come to Penn and we would mentor them, we would do drama, we would do theater, math, we do all that good stuff. And uh, I had the same music for all four years of college. And uh, this poem is about him and uh, about, I guess, how I hope that he doesn't buy into what the world says he has to be and who he is. Um, thank you all for listening. So this is Debbie. Derek and I play basketball on weekends. He's a citywide champion, and I'm not very good, but he still lets me win sometimes. Claims that he gets more girls than me. We both know how impossible this is, but I give him the benefit of the <laughs> like doubt. the overlooked style call during the championship game, and I wonder if he's so adept at dribbling because he's never been very good at holding on to anything for too long. He never travels has never really left Western, so to we reimagine our kneecaps as jet engines. To propel us from the athletic to the imaginary without a second thought The other never carries anything but his hopes and dreams in that single folder in his knapsack, stopping words on the pages until ink drops like blood onto the concrete of his composition you know his Words will come and know the past to his past. While I'm able to imagine a 13 year old boy with astronomical dreams for a 10 foot mindset, so he's scared to shoot for the moon for fear that he might wound her. Because the same hands that were names have also cracked lips and broken jaw bones. Because in school, they are twice as hard as Place. And I will to take out that angle on standardized test and break down Gallery School's brains, showing that the triangle all-beds is so different from the triangular tree, that the film scales of the middle passage, and how Alan Iverson's brains would have been a cornwall map to freedom back in slavery days. It's a history lesson, taking place in the middle of a park, and I want him to be more vulnerable. But he's got a hardened heart, and a culture of violence ending him on from the bleachers. These children choose top over blackboards, give a grade school for gats to clap each other like backboards It's a game, they know they're destined to lose. but when Derek jumps, you would swear that rusty orange rainbow comes to hang on, hanging majestically among his angelic adolescent body, on old list, by the guillotine eyes of the 7th grade teachers who never taught him how to put pictures from the gate, but so imagination is forced to jump off the bench and flip on the bulls of Derek's game, you're supposed to read. That's how he plays. Stuff is so stereotypic, James, are we everyone sitting in the stands seems to view him. And I pray that he never tricks jump shots for bump shots. But the shooting yard, who at cards instead of baskets. Are we wise with the arrows so when they switch in the casket and he's jordan it. and he's prime? 45 on his back, so frozen in time, the to the pavement. Because I couldn't promise him that mathematics make him a millionaire. But he still does his best to pay attention. And I told him that sixty years ago, people that looked like us were afraid of this world's accession But how long we could remain suspended in the air. But Derek still so stresses over his hand time. Can't understand why infants remain grounded. And so until today my skin, where there's the color and texture of the flipping basketball, I will always think of him. My hands will always be there. I was reminded that God cannot play dice. We definitely shoot who's. <laughs> I see them every weekend. Yeah. And the eyes of the 13-year-old more than a heart of the heart. Will Chamberlain's smile. And Chamberlain's fence fingers that hold this entire world in their grip. Swish. <laughs> Was a paradox. Each pillow felt more like a bag full of perks, cotton sheets, like straight jackets made from rusty hooks. My skin, a a brown, that wanted nothing more than to run, carving the silence into pieces just big enough for me to place in my pocket. For the next time, my nudist of a heart decided to expose itself to a (laughs) woman. Forgive me. I know it's only been two weeks. Soul and somersaulted from this unworthy mouth forward as the first bicycle ride without the assurance of training wheels or grandfather hands or darling. You make my organs feel like an organ, as if my bones were pipes. In the bedroom where our concert hall full of adopted children would only learn the meaning of home an hour before they filled the pews cracking like right the shadow which take the dust from the stars wave our bodies in the brightness and transform the entire plan into our own personal mason jar two lightning bug lovers dancing in the jealous air until our bulbs turn black the shadows of our youth cuddling in the poorest darkness but only if you say so if you promise that you asking me to wait isn't just some fire drill. Practice when what we have built finally burns to the ground around us because I want this to last. I want archaeologists to dig up our skeletons years from now and put them in a love museum. <laughs> Ranting <Lanternburg>. girl. Okay, sorry. <laughs> your eyes, your eyes are car accidents and I just can't stop staring at you. And I know that it might sound callous. But there's something humbling about watching how you walk away from all that luggage with stars that look more like keyholes to a door no one has ever opened but my lips. They have a part-time job on the weekend as locksmiths. So when you're ready to settle down, kiss me the way the hammer does the nail and let us rebuild each other from scratch where the morning sky is our blueprint and a mason jar full of newly-wet fireflies to keep us warm. Thank <laughs> you. I'm gonna do the rest.
3: That's what she did. <laughs> 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 be so
2: you can enjoy it. How about you bring her a phone, crazy. Right. I gotta one, man? I got to read her to next phone, man. i go back. So, okay. <laughs> I got a girlfriend that too. So, this one... like right, the projector is you know, like, right? it all seems back in her head like her comments are so, are so like, her terms are so rigorous like she's just <laughs> <so laughs> <so laughs> you know, talking about her and I feel like this oh, comments Happens. And the burdens we have left behind us like breadcrumbs for our children to follow. So, when it comes to the kids, let their first words be their names, so that from the very beginning they will know what it means to define themselves. So, they come to the earth their feet. With roots for toes and fingers like leaves will grow a whole forest. Again, a family tree. Be my archangel. My first real kiss. A handful that feels like resurrection when you walk into the room. And my heart becomes a ribcage, penis. Seeing fire Singing fireball lullabies to calm the uneasiness in my quaking legs. I'm shattering from the center like a nuclear bomb in a greenhouse knees. Tiger-looking bones are burning, withering, crisping the color of midnight. We are dying here. Our lose were made for such end gravity. We are citizens of the heavens. Hot air balloons trapped in cages of flesh and bone. No wonder I get so high off of your touch. Must be that helium in your bloodstream. that hydrogen smile that you throw by the boomerang at this broken space the shell of a man that's forgotten how to fly or dream or swim in that ocean of hailstorm and thunder we were birthed from. I just want to breathe you. Fingertips treats weather patterns onto your skin. and heal the hurricane in your lungs and feel the thunder blowing within. Dear boyfriend, and this is what really happened. Her boyfriend is in the audience, right? So you, sir, so, will be her boyfriend for the next one minute and 40 seconds. Dear boyfriend, you better hold your tighter than an armrest rest a crashing airliner. You're afraid that I will windwalk my way onto that plane? i away myself, but this love, to be honest, always wears a heart in her sleeve so I can see your face every time she winks hello, or shakes my hand to you at the time. So don't think that I will recognize you. And the way forward will probably take for years from now, as I didn't didn't help with my own children. Joyce will see will be possible but still earthbound, bound. Let that hygienic smile lift my spirits and remind me of turn us to tastes like one in the morning. Dear God, you said that love isn't selfish, that is patient. Perfect and it's the only real goal you ever gave us. the love of you and our enemies. And I'm sure my heart is not a cup my neighbor's life, but they are not even married than that. <laughs> <laughs> sure, it's beautiful tonight. Okay. I okay. Everyone's in your life for a reason. Whether they cause you to spring to join or fall from grace, they're only here for a certain season. So, dear unattainable love. If you ever find yourself alone at a bus stop in Brooklyn with a leg heavy heart and a craving for wings, write me a love poem on a kite. Made from paper clips and old crossword puzzles waiting for an evening. That sunset is so crazy, you could fry an egg on it and let it fly. Addressed to the void with earthquake coat signs and serely, the best co-pilot decided to have this PS. Lying was never worth it. I'll see you on the other side. So, yeah, there's no real life happening in like. your life. <laughs> so, I'm a girlfriend. I'm single. Single life is awesome, you know? Especially as like a grad student. How many grad students are in here right now? All right. So, get number to your guys' Relationships suck, man. It's weird. You know, get into that in depth analysis. You know, go to class and make those two really strong comments. Seriously, man. Wow, too much time, bro. Too much time. Anyway, I guess these next couple, um, these next three, are for, uh, they're all about my family. And I'm much closer to the theme. So the next poem is uh, called "Jesus Writing you and uh, it's, it's actually just about the, the way I was raised. Um, even in terms, of, you saw in the title, the last, the last phrase was uh, "the disabled God," right? Um, and that comes from a book by Nancy Isenberg that I used to read—a really powerful, really, really powerful book. And it's uh, it's about working towards a liberatory theology of disability. So how can we imagine a God in a wheelchair, right? Like a God that looks like everybody, right? Um, and it's funny, because this book was written in 1994 before I ever read books like that. And um, I realized that my mom had kind of been teaching me about God and looks like that the whole time anyway. You know, like a God that looked like my older brother, my deaf older sister, my younger brother with autism, they were all beautiful. And like, these things were gifts. Like, the word disability was like very, rarely used in my household. It was like, nah, It's like, me and my dad love you the way we love all of our siblings, because we made you guys, you know? <laughs> we made all of you, and you're equally a part of us. But Jesus writing shotgun, more than anything, is about learning to be a man from women. Um, Especially with with a lot of my best friends. A lot of us either didn't have fathers or we didn't have really close relationships with our dads. Um, And I thank God for my father. He's recently been a lot more active in my life. We had a really, really difficult time when I was younger. So these next two poems are kind of about him too, I guess. Women just tell me everything about what you got to work. Oh snap people from U so kids. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I mean what lines like right I'll
3: oh, y'all today. <laughs> um,
2: so this next poem is uh, I don't know, it's really close to my heart. It's the most recent, it's the second most recent poem I'll be doing tonight. And um, just live with me. That's cool. And now I'm live with the kid, they're gonna take you back. Take you back to when I was a young man. Let's do it. I love you uh, This That's for you. Okay. I was born to a family of sharecroppers. The descendants of North Carolina sleeps who held my infant body as if it were cotton. Three mothers, all with skin like carpenters. I learned how to worship from the texture of my sister's hands. Figured that's what Jesus' hands must have felt like, like wood and fire and hard work from everyday walking from the world that clearly does not love you. Me and God have never been strangers. I've always seen His face and the eyes of the women that made my life worth living every Sunday. Looking out over a sea of brown faces, church hats, adorning their heads like nylon heels, and pews, one giant rainbow of our sanctuary, floating just inches from heaven, close enough for our Savior to look upon us and smile. Two-stepping and doing with as children, we dance, as if the floor was made of angel feathers, as if we had trampolines in our shins, as if salvation wasn't just some foreign concept, as if we could touch it, snatch it like lightning bolts, and then blending up the night sky, hundreds of hands, stretched outward for our promise we could actually depend on. For the first 18 years of her life in a tenement in the South Bronx. Two parents, five brothers and sisters, and my great grandmother cranked in a brick box the size of a welfare check. I can't imagine
3: what those winters must
2: have felt like. With nothing but secondhand blankets and faith to keep them warm, as mom raged are went to war on that inner city. And hip hop was born from the ashes of apartment buildings. Children going to bed with their shoes on, just in case the building began to burn in their sleep. They say that Jesus had eyes for fire, hair like wool, and feet of brass. I'm sure he used to help my mother hop sacks over heroin needles every day on a way to school to be proud, in spite of a culture that said her skin was too dark to be washed clean. I was born into the arms of blue. God, no they believed in gravity, who taught me how to fly, when this world got a little bit too heavy for my fragile skeleton with no money, and a pistol of Bible words to stretch this thing, as the cotton sheets that covered bays and killed blacks, a great grandmother's tears, like salt for a into the same soil that held her dead mother's bones, we dream of heaven, and imagine angels that were nothing like the whitewash religion we here been fed, I serve a God without a color. Loves in spite of everything, and made him this way. A man forged from the wounds of women who always knew would meant to serve to people humble and steadfast, who stood as if their backbones were made of gold, smiling when their husbands left them before they expected new. No. Those Sunday morning car rides to Baptist churches built more like canyons that their Savior was riding shotgun. His watchful eyes protecting their firstborn son. Teaching him how to be a father. I will never leave their side. <laughs> <laughs> I can't look at my mom and never. It's one of the bravest people I've ever met. So my father integrated his high school. Uh, my father was 62 years old, born in Birmingham, Alabama, raised there. I was the first black man to graduate from high school uh, after that. Went, fought in Vietnam, came back home, started a family, was trying to do law school, couldn't finish because he had kids, and uh, worked in a post office for 40 years. So um, I think that's in terms of way I, I view the world, through like a Marxist lens that is like focused on like, the upliftment of like working class people, that comes from having a mother that's an accountant and a father that literally, my father literally used to lift bags of mail every day and just move them from the truck, bring them inside and like take the mail and he was do this every day for 10 hours, a job he hated. This man is absolutely brilliant. I I only find out recently, my guy used to direct plays, like he used to be an actor, like he was in law school and it's just crazy the things people give up for their families. And I just never thought about it that way. I was like, my dad sucks. It's like, he's all resentful. And now all the time, oh man, your crazy. Like, it's nuts. You know, just these past few years, especially since I turned 20, I've seen thinking a lot more about what it means to be a man, how hard it is, and what crazy messages the world gives me about what that means. Um, and recently, I've seen my father, and it's probably especially along the lines of disability. I've seen both of my parents training a really powerful disability rights activists in ways that just like completely warm my heart. You know, because both the work that I'm going to do in England and uh, my doctoral work at Princeton, that all comes from, from my family. Like this is not some theory that I read in a book that like disabled people are like should be treated as equals. Like that's something that I learned when I was a little boy. As as I saw those hammering my head every day by like, by my parents who were like in church doing like American sign language translation for folks. You know my dad used to host a Bible study at his work. For, for deaf folks, and he would get them all together life. This would translate for them when we had issues on the job. It's like I didn't get paid extra for this. This is something he did from his heart. And my parents have inspired me to just, for the rest of my life, no matter what happens, even if there's no money in to just speak the truth. And that's all that matters at the end of the day. to the day I die they will have to wrestle the truth from our dead palms. I know that's really scary. And I just started going in. I don't really feel that way. Like, I feel like, especially in college, you're going to have to partner in this rant instead of going. So, especially in college, like, UPAD had great school. but like, It's such a pre-professional space. And I feel like we were just taught to serve money. That if we were like a lawyer, we didn't end up being a lawyer, a banker, or a doctor. We just didn't tell us all the doctors. But it was like, we <laughs> didn't it. it was just like you didn't matter like if you wanted to be a painter everybody looked at you crazy you know I was like I think I would actually just like to you know, teach theater in the inner city and like get a PhD and maybe teach out like of college or something but you know my heart is with the kids I grew up with you know and we didn't have theater you know like South York that's not something I was talking about uh, we had our music you know we had pens on lunchroom tables making beats because we didn't have bands because they cut music you know like that's that's where I'm from. I'm from people that made everything after nothing. And uh, my, my father is such a good example of that. Because the world tried to chew him up and spin him out. And he came out beautiful. So this poem is uh, about my daddy and uh, how much I love him and the power of uh, forgiveness. And I thank y'all for listening to this. I won't fall back after this. So yeah. You know, you
4: know, and <laughs> do QA, right?
2: q awesome. So formulate questions, listen to the poem, but formulate questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, while I'm working on pedagogy practicing. <laughs> a stout from his spine including the beach toward the head in his dream as a blind cry like mothers forced to give birth in bad back eyes and brothels. my father is Mel he's a postal worker a Vietnam vet with a Jim Crow education six kids enough for rest to fill a castle with sometimes sleeps with his eyes open as a between degree a reduction from whenever insomniac angels could still be watching over him and with all of his flaws I still love you. with every bit of the jigsaw puzzle heart that pumps life through this thin frame. The exact same blood that runs through my body, James, because no matter how many miles i go between us, what times I try to forget, and the undeniable truth remains that I'm a carbon copy of my father. Exactly 5 to 10, 160 pounds soaking wet without a muscle in sight. Both by action movies, love to pretend that we're really good at basketball <laughs> and have this amazing ability to emotionally damage those who care about Take my mother, for instance. The woman who gave me life. The person my father and I owe our latest apology to for our unwillingness to be vulnerable. So, Mom, am sorry for being so ungrateful for not being satisfied with the fact that most times it was only you in the audience at the performances and watching over the sidelines. But growing up as a black man in America has told me anything It's that there's. Showing another man you care about him. And so in this moment, right now, I'm choosing to murder the monster that hides inside me. The one that keeps me from crying when I need to, and telling my little brother, I love you, Dad. No matter what this world would say, you are an inspiration. for or part of politics. Turn being a mailman into a metaphor. Because for as long as I can remember, for ten hours a day, you would sling a hundred-pound sack of mail over your shoulders. Carry the messages of this world on his back like a 60-year-old atlas with an Alabama accent in. No may not know it. There's no rest Word, he doesn't like the way I write poems. See my hands turn the
3: cavalier papers when I pick up a pen. A lot my words are rocking through the air. I was on a 1st name basis with the
2: wind. And so as long as it's cool with my dad, I'll continue to believe that the lights I write to tonight night are coming from within him. The fireflies on his inside. The sunbeams that clean from the sky, and let me know that my father will never die. Only for rising of time. And in spite of all we've been through, I'm glad that he's online. Even when we forget to act like family. Our emotions don't align but he doesn't have the insight to see. That I'm the only 22 year old that who wants to grow up to be just like his dad. There's no one else who can bear the weight of my earth size and the way that he can. And even when no one suspects him, his second youngest son understands that life ain't easy. When you come home from war with a purple heart fastened to your chest and a shadow run behind the scenes, when post-office realities of earth is the bastard children of your also awesome dreams I know but you sacrifice for me. And I promise I'll use this God-given gift to repay you one day. But for right now, man, let go. It's okay to be broken sometimes. Let the light of the loose so that I can illuminate the path for my children and provide them with undeniable proof that they're the descendants of a man who held the scars in his stomach he and he crumbled a novel with his smile and spoke truth to his son. And if the entire world we're we'll watching. alright uh oh alright you okay. All right. Uh-oh. All right. Y'all are still going to be saying big, did you? Yeah. Y'all actually surprised. What a surprising amount of you guys actually <laughs> did. Right. Thank you all so much. That's what like a beautiful audience. i like really receptive. You guys like my jigs. It's really cool. <laughs> Okay, so this last poem is man, uh, <clears throat> this is the poem I got invited here for. The first time I was even privy to the existence of a program that I had to listen. So uh, this poem is called I was like this, and um, I recited this last night throughout Barack and Michelle Obama in the White House. And, um, and that's actually just—I feel like every time I'm ready I get invited to do something, it's really weird. So I was just studying in the finals, you know, I had like a big T-shirt, like sitting in my room. You know, I get a call. of Stan standing, and the dude that like that poetry and all that stuff. He's like, "Hey, Josh!" He was like, "Hey, Josh, you what's know, on?" I'm
3: like, oh, "I'm chosen, sure yeah!"
2: You know. Said, oh, no. He was like, "Look, man, we have to man at the White House. You know, you want to come?" I'm like, "Yeah." What party is that, man? Like, you want to perform for the president? Duh, you know. So, you know, it's crazy. It's like just being chosen for things is like amazing because I feel like. It could have been anyone, but not at the same time. But you know, I like, they asked for a poem about communication. I wrote to my when I was 19 years old. And so like, to have that poem, I wrote it the summer before my sophomore year. So it was about to be the summer before my senior year. You know, and I was about to do this poem for the president. I had a week to get it from three minutes and like 40 seconds to two minutes. So I'm gonna be nine. the review today. But um, standards being on like in a poem is more than two minutes. Nobody can focus on it, it's a bunch of poems. <laughs> Um, which is kind of true well on TV is true but anyway so like I get there you know we can bring one guest so I'm like who else you know my mom such a mom voice, so excited don't wait <laughs> mom that's crazy uh, <laughs> my mom is like my mom is like oh my And my mom she's gonna kill me for saying this my mom was so like self-grunt you know so like we're in the spot and she got she got to meet Michelle Obama. She's like, Michelle, what do you think of after I performed but he was so good, wasn't he? You know that's my son, right? And Michelle's like, yeah, hey, you're kind lovely. And I like, had an extended conversation like, with my mother. And it's crazy, just like, shocked me most of all, Barack and Michelle, besides like, the fact that are were like six foot plus with these was she's so tall. And, like, she's tall, she so, like, And we're just so humble. You know, I'm really looking forward to seeing you perform. I was like, me? Right? how do you know I am? You know, apparently she's a fan of the HBO documentary. Um, I always want to call new voices and um, just to meet folks like that. You know, like whatever you think about Obama's policy. I mean, I'm an anti-war myself, so I'm always gonna have to be a coming out. Yeah, yeah we're gonna shout out to Pete. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, but if nothing else, he's a, a charismatic brother. And, um, he paid attention to me. He paid attention to a bunch of books that he never probably heard of before the week before, and I was an incredible on member. um So now I actually heard this poem for the first time about two weeks ago. And now um, one of the most incredible moments I've ever had in my life, actually. I gave her a copy of my book, Jesus Right. I promise this is not a book. I gave her a copy of the book, Jesus writing and shot so that while I was performing, she could follow along. So only the poems that were in the book. So that way she'd like read. It was at a book signing that my mom threw for so, like my family folks came. It was great. But happened through my performance Samara puts the book down. And for the rest of the performance, she doesn't look at the book again. And um, it kind of threw me off and really, you know, after, I talked to my dad, I was like, man, why should put down the book? Like, I didn't promo specifically so she wouldn't be excluded, you know, from the event. And he was like, I mean, I talked to her about it and she said she could feel your voice. And like. That it was just the craziest thing. Not that she could read my lips, but that she could physically feel the impact of my voice and knew like the words everything I was saying. And just like, if you guys leave with nothing else today, it's just that like I've seen just like God doing a powerful work in my family. I've been so scared my entire life of being different. I always wanted to be popular. I always wanted to be him, you know, because i have a Christian. You know, I'm and that's not like really cool. Like, I guess, like, when you're in, like, a public school, like, in the city, like, people Yo, well, know you suck, well, you can't right? rap. Like, oh, you, you know what's up, you know, and, like, that's just not the way I was raised. I was raised to, like, fear God, I love education, and play Scrabble. That's my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> anybody here anybody, anybody, that really thinks you're a nice to Scrabble, please come see me. It's you know, really fill it Me and my mom would take like anybody to want to, uh, <laughs> but it was not a joke. So... So the is a poem that comes out of that, that comes out of living with family that always, from day one, celebrated difference and uh, is every day working toward being more inclusive, not just for like ourselves, but even with the work I see my mom and my dad doing outside of the home, like just spreading awareness about autism, especially in communities of color, when these discussions are just very uncomfortable. Right? Um, and in America, we have a long history of just shutting people with disabilities away right? Whether it's in hospitals or tech, you know, sending people away because, like, they don't fit into what we think people should look and sound and talk like. Um, my mother-sister's amazing. She has forgiven me, which is really the most powerful thing to me about the peace. The piece is about how everybody in my family is really big of self besides me. Um, growing up, I was always just scared I was scared of not picking up quick enough, and I never picked up at all. And it's crazy when you look at the statistics and stuff like this, because apparently a lot of younger siblings of deaf folks don't learn ASL at all, or like any form of sign language. And it just blows it, it my mind to realize that this is this was not something that was just me. Um, and I think that's what led me to the academy, was that I realized that there was a world of people that had questions about things that I had questions about. Um, and what drew me to the art form was not only that there are people with emotions experiences that I've also had. So thank you for allowing me to share this snippet of my life with you all You've been a beautiful audience. And i just close it out and have fun with it. So this is 2 hours Listen to hip hop. Never dance to the rhythm of raindrops or falling asleep to a chorus of children crickets. All she knows is silence. A lonely, long island apartment is quiet as a premature infant can before it takes its breath. She has been deaf for as long as I've been alive. And ever since the day that I first turned five, realizing my sister could not sing happy birthday like all my other friends and family, I wondered why things had to be this way. My father said, Joshua, Nothing is wrong with you now. God just makes some people different. And at that moment, those nine letters felt like cameras. So I'm gracefully brought my only hands to shatter my stained glass innocence into shards that can never be pieced back together or do anything more than separate the ties between my sister and I. I decided to deny it. That you could condition us to did in existence in hopes that our devils would dissipate with time. That when one day with you, attention will be mine. i will only sheltered at me. I'll breathe. Was patient this years anticipating the second her ears would open like locuses and allow myself like senses to seep into her insides, appeal to her subconscious mind, and make her remember all of those conversations we must have had in heaven that and God had picked us to be siblings souls centuries ago. I still remember her twentieth birthday. Relevating the call, my reverend all-struck eyes, and deaf start deafening women of all ages, dancing, music, the vibration, the speakers moving so loud, that I imagine angels chastising us for disturbing their worship with such beautiful blasphemy until we have seen a deaf girl dancing no, nothing of passion, faithful, knew my sister in ways I never could. She had a comment of trouble that I weighed, and the fickle churches in my father's blood actually ran within our veins. There was a battle between us that I never took the time to destroy. Never even moment i to pick up a book and look up the side for sister her family. For goodbye, I will see you again. Someday, remember the face of your little brother. It is all now I see. I was never willing to put in extra effort to love her properly. So I was the only person in my family who was not fluent in sign language. I decided to take this time to apologize tomorrow. I am sorry for my signs. For the blank stare in my eyes when you dad and make jokes. that caused volcanic to laugh to grow through from your insides. Burned the burn cover all. Foolish time has allowed me to pass notes all these years. Instead of simply cooking with the fact that we will never hear and love you from the way you were made, true love knows no frequency, and so I'll use these hands to speak volumes that can ever be contained within the boundary of sound waves. I'll shout at the top of my fingertips as a big dance and you these mental messages directly to your soul. I know that there is no poem that can make up all the time we have lost so please, if you can, Just listen. Stop playing the symphony on the strings of my heart. Made for no other ears on this earth but yours. I'm trying to bring myself back to the moment um, where it's not even about the words, but more about allowing me to feel how I felt in that moment. So literally speaking with the body in a certain way, right? It's really important to me. Like, uh, I always try to just let go and let my body do whatever it wants. Like, during <laughs> the poems, right? So anytime you see me perform on these poems it'll look completely different. In terms of how my body moves, even probably in the inflection. I know scenario has probably changed like a bajillion times, you know, over the past time I remember. Over the past like three years, you know, um, and I guess the energy of reciting it is really just one of doing my best to just be honest and open. Uh, I always do my best to have an open stance, and I always have open eyes for the doctor's audience. You, know, you guys see me writing music, so yes, I'm A lot of- when the subjects of the poem are actually present. So, like, even when I started doing a 2 of kind of Jesus writing shotgun, like, seeing my mother here and knowing that I wrote that poem about it, it just makes me connect with it in a completely different way. Um, So a lot of times when I healing happens, when I take the work from the page into my life and actually go and talk with these folks about the issues that I had at brought me to writing the piece in the first place. So Derek, for example, has only seen that poem once. And the time he saw it, he was like, man, I love that poem, thank you so much. And just being able to connect with him, like he gets it. Like he knows that, like, I love him, and that I want the best for him, and that this isn't a poem just to be a poem. Those poems, I care about you, and everything in it, whether it be metaphorical or not, is real. Like, I really do fear for you and I want you to do your best to remember that you're not just a basketball player, you're not just an athlete, that you this beautiful, wonderful shape, that you anything. Um, so yeah, I think in terms of the process of feeling, it's to the writing, it like it's, it's in the it performing, it's in the acting it up. You know, I'm, I'm a firm believer that if you're going to write it on somebody about an issue you have with them, you have to be able to take it to them. So even my ex-girlfriend, maybe that's that poem you're happy about. Like, yeah. i talking about all that stuff, you know? We had to have a conversation. But for me to do it in front of people and then look you in the face like you haven't seen it or heard it is messed up. You know <laughs> but, <laughs> what I'm saying? That is not going to do that much of a dirty i would be like, that's kind of stream up. you just like looked at my face are like, yeah, I I really don't really know how to do that right now. Thanks though. So. You know, one of my away from So yeah, I don't know if I asked you your question, It did. Uh, those there's a question in like, yeah, We'll go back for I'd love to see the triple. Well, uh I'll have it on deck now, but I'll send you a YouTube. <laughs> yeah, I guess hand it to me. I can't say it was like when that poem was different on paper in the performance now. Because as I grow, I either write new poems or I'd old poems more accurately reflect where I am in the moment that I'm performing. Um, Not just to stray away from being disingenuous, but to make sure that I can perform it with conviction and really mean what I'm saying in the moment. life. I think people can feel that. Like I've always been able to feel that when a performer was disingenuous. You know, even if every poem or song they did was perfect, there's a difference between polish and honesty. It's just not the same thing. Um, so i have always done my best to be honest performer. And yeah, I think hopefully the, the work is growing. The way I write is changing. So even the first poem that I wrote off paper is very different, I think, structurally and like, performance-wise from a lot my earlier stuff. But I think I was more concerned with rhythm and cadence than the story itself. Like I literally just had to get that poem out. That poem just in me for such a long time. You know, I was going into into jails and just sitting with the most brilliant students I've ever met. Like once I came to university primary school, high school, these were the sharpest kids I've ever come across. The analytical tools were incredible. I would just give them something and make fun of it. i would like, okay, so who will know who's who, who and one person will know. But he'll have a whole history about like, the connection between capitalism and black death and the prison system itself and racism and patriarchs. What? Like, and you literally just have to give them the terms because they know what all this stuff means already. Sorry, I'm not just like going you know in, mean? but it's just so interesting that I think I'm growing. Through my homes almost, like doing that home in a prison would be a completely different performance than what she saw here today. And I think that's what helped me grow, is that I just realized it's a different home that I grew up here. Back here, I promised somebody back here that they were going to have Let me see your thank, you. thank, you. thank, you. thank you so much for coming
3: back. Oh, thank you. Can you talk a little about
0: the
2: It's so hard to keep people out of prison that want to do <laughs> anything. It's like it's very interesting to me, right? Because essentially, you have just like a large like force of like slaves. Like I've talked to the kids about how much they make. They're like, oh, two cents an hour. I was like, oh, that's, that's a lot for like what you do, right? It's crazy. And um, we actually never needed microphones because the room we work in is about this big. Like it's really small. So to the third row of seats forward to about where the microphone is now, that's how much space we have to work with. So. Um, but it's powerful because we're all writing each other's face. you know. So I do a poem about my dad. Everybody's feeling that, right? You know, um, and it's been tremendously difficult. I'm so thankful for uh, another organization called the Youth Art Self Empowerment Project, based out of Philadelphia, uh, which is doing incredible work with folks that were formerly incarcerated. Once they get out, they plan workshops to bring back into the prisons that they were once in. Um, that was something I was centrally concerned with. Right. So not only are we giving people workshops while they're there? Once you get out, what are you supposed to do? How do you find employment? How do you use your gift and your art to get back on your feet? And that's what the Youth Art Center counterpart has done. And that's what I see Mars doing. Like, I'm not there anymore, you know, and I'm so thankful for that. So I'm a project, which is my spoken word in my pen, because a lot of my fellow poets have taken up that mantle and are like going back into the prisons this fall, so I'm really excited. But uh, it's changed my life. Um, I think for a while, even having an older brother that was incarcerated, I was comfortable with the idea that if you kill somebody, you should go to jail. That was just a logical connection in my head. I was like, there are certain things you just deserve to die. Like, yeah, that makes sense. You're like a terrible person. And then I really sat with kids that had killed people and realized that is one thing you did in your life that you will now die for, and you are 15 years old. And no one will know your it. it will not be on the news. Maybe the crime committed to get here will be on the news, but the fact that they're killing young men and women, it's not getting us, you know, and I um, It's everything about what I knew mean, an activist was. And that kind of our company, we are songs and we protest things, and then we go back to our girl rooms when we get our you know, $200,000 application. That's not to critique anyone that's comfortable with a different sort of activism, but as for me, there has to be just something else, um, and I'm searching for whatever that is.
4: I'm gonna end with a question, which is why medicine? We're at narrative medicine. You're a genius at narrative. You have just done a firm job of giving us narrative. 60 years ago, when I was where you are in my growth and development, this place was called the College of Physicians and Surgeons. And in those days, medicine was physicians and surgeons. Since that time, this school is no longer the College of Physicians and Surgeons, it's the Institute of Medicine, and the new dean has said, I'm no longer the dean of the medical school, I'm dean of health sciences." science. okay, we spread it. Another spread happened. When I was where you are, we had a token black, two token Jews, maybe a few token Catholics in this medical school, and it was very different than what it is now. Now, the world has changed a hell of a lot since I was there, and so now you come, I think you could have done today a group of engineers, whom we worked with a lot, we didn't used to. A uh, group of uh, nurses, we helped deal with them a lot. And so it's narrative health, is what we're really talking about. And I'm going to guess, there's probably more people in this room who are in the public health school, or the nursing school, or the, some other school, and not just in medicine. Yeah. And so, you, but you've done the genius job for the narrative. Is there something that, about medicine yeah. which gives you a little jazz or a hop or skip or jump? Or something? <laughs> <laughs> it's
2: different. <laughs> yeah, no, <yeah, yeah. laughs> Well, first I want to thank you for the very question. Um, yeah, I mean, I think for me, narrative medicine is all about. Oh, it's not the back. Um, for me, for me, narrative medicine is just all about debunking the notion that medicine is putting chemicals in somebody's body to heal. That, that That's all it is and that's all it can be. Um, and I I, mean, I guess I've been a patient of now in medicine as well as hopefully a practitioner one day, right? I've been healed by stories. I've, I've heard someone say something that's related to someone that's going me jump out of my seat and say, yeah, that's how I felt, man. Like that story was not exactly mine, but, but the heart of was the same. And uh, I mean medicine, you Australians, are essentially concerning the madness of the heart, right? So I guess, how do we fix not just the, the corporeal, palpable heart, but also, I guess, the heart of guides us? That's what I'm interested in. Woo! Oh, wow. <laughs> 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 Thank That's I felt. I mean, that's what, You know? Really tough time, and we're still working through a lot of those issues, you know, especially in terms of diversity. So hopefully, something I've said today uh, can help heal somebody. Yeah, uh, yeah. First, thank you so much for a little bit of truth. It was very, very moving. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about you as a practitioner. Um, sort of a two-parter. First, give you a chance to describe uh, impacts that you may be aware of, like you know of. Of, of your words on people but uh, a little more specifically I'm curious to hear how some of the ways that you might you might use poetry in your teaching. I wasn't I wasn't sure if you did like when you talked okay. about your teaching. And so is that workshop and people writing their own or looking at your poetry? Like what are some of the exercises around the poems that you can develop? Good, I right. answer so the second question first. Okay. So just to clarify, uh, the work that the BARS program does, we pitched it as a as a creative writing to help them deal with anger. Because right? to get into a prison, you basically have to say, we're going to rehabilitate these, like, six sad people, right? So that's how we that it's gonna help them, you know, channel their anger, a uh, spoken word, and theater arts, right? What we really did is, I walk into a classroom, and we have a theme. So the poem came from the day that disability was our theme. And I just literally go to the kids like this, disability, what do you think, John? Crippled. What about you, Mikey? Retarded. Broken. Wheelchair came. And we literally go around like that, we write the, the terms on the board, and we sit there for two hours and we work through what stories brought us to that place where those are the first words that come from our minds. Why are we so comfortable with some of this really hurtful language that we think of? Um, and I guess how we work through that. And the crazy thing was, especially about the disability workshop, was by the end of the workshop, almost two or three of the students were like, I'm disabled. You know, and this, it was the first time they come to seeing themselves that way, and it was empowering. Uh, one of them, Q, actually had cerebral palsy, but Mikey, you know, he'd been stabbed about that, and he also had post traumatic stress disorder. Now, I'm thinking of, of that, something that's only associated with veterans, but I'm telling the kids I work with, this man said he saw his best friend die at point range, right there, bullet to the side of his head. And he's like, I can't sleep the same after. You know, my father suffers from some symptoms, so when I talk about sleeping with his eyes open, and like there were times when my dad was like, I fall asleep like this, you know, or a car backfire, which is like, jarring, like, you know? Um, so that's how, in terms of incorporating poetry, I always do a poem at the end that's inspired by the poem, and we always go around and have everyone write a poem and read it out loud. Um, and to me, that's really important, because especially in prison, you're never talking to your voice nice ever. You're never asked to speak. You're asked to shut up all the time. But it's never like, this is my work and this is beautiful. And uh, we're also working right now. To compile all their poems into an anthology and not have it published, uh, hopefully, the dependency book. So that would be beautiful to see that happen. And your first question was, how do I... Yeah, was, uh, was, uh, what was the impact that you know Ah, um, uh, impact, exactly. right, right. Yeah. I mean, for me, the biggest, the most beautiful thing about technology is, I've had kids say, man, I saw you on YouTube and that's when I started writing. And to me, those the most, that's the most beautiful people I could ever get, like, man, I had such an issue with my dad, and I watched a poem and maybe feeding our relationship and now I'm writing something inspired. And so people hit me up, like, man, your poem inspired me kind of write, Like, I guess in a denim, so I'm like, "Duh, go okay, ahead, man. That's <laughs> not my idea. Like, nothing is my idea. You know, I have an archive, I guess, of terms and lines and metaphors and stuff, but like it's human experience that gave me this poems. So uh, I guess the most tangible impact is I've seen people say that they treat women differently, which is beautiful. Like brothers that I've met who say they watch 10 things from like, I never realized that, that the way I talk is really damaging, um, especially with the kids in prison. Because man, it's a crazy language like, to talk about women. I'm just like, that's when you have a mom, and a lot of them have daughters. when it's like, that doesn't make any sense. You would never let anybody call your daughter or mom that. So what's really going on? Let's have a conversation. Do you, uh,
4: do you work uh, with the disabled community at all? Yeah,
2: um, so so
4: glad you asked that.
2: Okay, so um, right now, uh, as I head to the UK, I'm really excited. I reached out to an online forum that's called gap which is the International Building of Disabled Artists and Performers. And uh, so basically, what I'm trying to do with uh, my funding for the Marshall Scholarship is uh, I'm trying to go out and interview contemporary Black physically and mentally disabled artists working in the UK, and I want to help incorporate their stories into a genealogical a timeline that the in the 19th century of black disabled folks in the UK and then when I come back here to Princeton I'm trying to focus on the, the American side so I'm really trying to create a transatlantic narrative uh, for folks whose bodies and souls have been ignored for such a long time you know, like folks like uh, Thomas Williams who was blind had autism and played the piano in the White House and was the same in the late 19th century and just when I found folks like that just been digging into the archives outside. man. Whatever i do with this 200-page master's thesis, it's got to have something to do with this. It's got to make somebody say, i never heard that before. I didn't know it really mattered. Here it is, you know? Um, but yeah, it's something I'm working toward more now. I've um, been for a while in my training. People just told me in school to just write about populations of people and never actually deal with them. And I was like, that doesn't make sense. You know? <laughs> Are you sure that's that? to like get tender over writing about like, porn every single week and never see one, you know So Yes, it's something every day um, getting, I'm getting emails from folks about what of precious to participate in the project, and uh, it's exciting. It's really exciting Should we, yeah? Oh, if anybody has a question, you can talk to me after. So,
0: so what I thought we'd do is, since we do have books available,
3: yes, yes. yes. <laughs> okay.
0: so I thought we'd give you all a chance to um, purchase books. Joshua would be happy and willing to sign them, yes, um, so to purchase books, have Joshua come sign them, and we have about 20 minutes till about 7 o'clock that we can be in this space, um, if people want to purchase books, and Talk amongst yourselves about what you've just heard. That's experience. Come Joshua. And then um, at 7 o'clock, the students in the
3: illness and narrative class will all be meeting in that room right there. Both
0: sections. So if you're in the Thursday class, you can find, or the Wednesday class with Marsha. So we're both going meeting in there. Okay? With Joshua, yay. Hey. Um, so, Joshua, thank you so much.